everybody, Tyler Smith here, ready to talk about uh, another best picture, this one from the year 1995. And to talk about it, I will welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hello. How you doing? Doing all right. All right. That's very exciting. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm thrilled. Yeah, I'm thrilled I, with how I, all right you're doing. I couldn't be more excited at you doing well. I'm so happy when you're doing well. Hmm. I'm sensing a tone there, but uh, maybe it's just uh, my there's imagination. No, there's no tone at all. It's just your dumb imagination. Oh, okay. Man, I just hate you so much. It was just my imagination. But I'm glad you're doing well. I'm always my... happy when you're doing well. It was just my dumb imagination running away with me. Exactly. Okay, so that was fun. Um, maybe not. I don't know. It's no, uh, it it, it's joking. It's, it, it's funny. It it's might for, be your imagination that that was fun. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Am I going to cut all that? Who knows? Uh, we're only a minute in. So, okay. Uh, so the last best picture we talked about was The English Patient. We had a lot of things to say about it. So now we come to a film that has that people like. I mean, and, and it's large enough and it's effective enough. I don't think people have a problem with it winning best picture. Uh, there are certain things that have taken on new meaning uh, given the events uh, of the last 10 years in the life of the director. Uh, and that is, uh, this film is Mel Gibson's Braveheart, written by Randall Wallace. Now, uh, it's the story, you know, I, I'm sure everyone has seen this, seen the film at this point, but, you know, it's about William Wallace. I'm not familiar with this film. Oh, I feel like I thought you'd seen it. Hmm. I guess it's the one you haven't seen. Hmm. Oh, you saw Rob Roy. It came out the same year. Oh, I was getting that mixed up with Dragonheart, which I saw. Oh, I saw okay. Dragonheart. Absolutely. So. And you thought, I could see this winning Best Picture. This yeah, makes totally. sense to me. Dragons. In reality, I have not seen Dragonheart, but I've seen Reign of Fire, so there's okay. that. And Pete's Dragon. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen Lionheart yeah. with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I've seen I Thunderheart. With uh, with Val Kilmer, I've Crazy seen, Heart. I've seen Crazy Heart. Mm-hmm. I've seen Crazy Love. It's a documentary. Mm-hmm. I saw Crazy Beautiful. I didn't see that. No, no one did. It's one of the only best pictures I haven't seen. <laughs> so uh, okay, we, okay. So we're feeling goofy. I I should explain. Uh, we're recording this right after uh, the English Patient. Minisode, mm-hmm. uh, and in between, uh, there's been all kinds of crazy stuff happening, and so we weren't able to go right in. So we haven't even really started talking about this film. So Braveheart, it's about William Wallace. It was uh, beloved. The film was beloved at the time. Um, it did fairly well at the at the Oscars um, and the box office and the box office. And uh, a lot of people have have sort of taken up the the tone of the film uh, and turned it into. Uh, sort of a life philosophy. Um, and I don't know of a lot of people at the time. I, there are people who had a problem with the historical inaccuracies of the film, mm. but there are other, but there are things that since Mel Gibson sort of went off the deep end and said like anti-Semitic stuff and just like really had a, his life really took a turn. Um, it caused people, I think to look back on his work and look, look for things that might be troublesome. 
And there are certain things in Braveheart that admittedly even I have uh, a problem with. I say even I as though I don't have a problem with anti-Semitism. Uh, <laughs> even I didn't like the anti-Semitism. Um, I mean, I, I look, I like a little bit, but there's just too much. Um, just a little, a little something for flavor. But, um, but like one thing that, uh, that jumps out at me, cause I, I guess when I say even I is that, uh, I don't like the idea of piling on a director and just literally going through his work with a fine tooth comb, knowing what you know now about him and just looking for anything. I don't necessarily like that instinct. Um, I think it, it's a very black and white kind of thing of, oh, this person did something wrong. So now we need to label everything they've done as somehow an extension of that wrongness. I don't necessarily like the idea of that, but I will say that one of the criticisms that has come about in sort of recent years is the depiction of, okay, so there's, uh, Edward, the Longshanks, who's the primary villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's his son who is going to, you know, uh, be the next in line, uh, and his son is gay and effeminate and is involved in a relationship with another man, even though he's been married off by his father to mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, Isabella, I believe. Isabella of sure. France. Um, and everything ab- – and it's it's fascinating to me. Um, as evil as Edward the Longshanks is, and he is in this film, he's very evil – one could make the argument a little too evil. Mm. Um, and that comes into the uh, historical inaccuracy thing based on uh, stories that you hear about Edward the Longshanks and actually being surprisingly generous mm. and charitable. But um, but anyway, it, but he's the villain, and so it's that's fine. But as villainous as he is, there does seem to be a general tone to the scenes with uh, his son and his son's lover. Uh in which, to the to the extent that at one point Longshanks kills his son's lover, like throws him out a window, and that scene somehow it it winds up, uh, you know, it's meant to make Longshanks look terrible, but somehow there's a tone to it that m- makes it seem like. As evil as he is, at least he's straightforward. You know, at least he's maybe even emphasis on the straight. Um, and the worst thing you can be in the world of Braveheart is effeminate or gay or passive or whatever. Hmm. Um, and so, and so the scenes with his son—it's weird to be leading with this, but like this is one of the problems that I have with it, and one of the problems that has come about uh, in recent years uh, that I think people. And maybe people have a, had a problem with it at the time, but um, but the scenes with his son remind me of the scenes in Monty Python and the Holy Grail with the weird little prince. <laughs> yeah, I actually I've had that same thought in watching that movie. Sometimes, yeah. it's like there's a weird, unintentional I think connection. Yeah. Uh, in this, and I feel like. When when it's reminding you of something that is that overtly silly and comedic, when it is re- when it has reminded both of us of mm-hmm. that, that means that there's some really blatant stuff going on. Like I yeah. think there's a 
as much as the film hates Longshanks, I think there's a disdain. Maybe not hate, but I think there's a disdain for the for Longshanks' son uh, and and his lover. Um, you see that you know they're kind of catty and and they feel entitled and stuff. And the film seems to really condemn that more than mm-hmm. anything. Uh, and so that is a thing that that's a criticism that's come about of the film recently that I think I probably agree with. Um, and just the the general simplification of of people, historical figures. What, mm-hmm. Historical doesn't actually even matter to me that much. Just characters in yeah. a movie and just boiling it down to black and white just tends to bother me. Yeah, and that's... Uh, I, I think that is probably a little bit of a taste thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might be with you on that, but... Uh, some people do like that kind of clear black and white, like here's the good guys and here's the bad guys, black hats, white hats sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's part of the general appeal to it. Not to say that uh, these dummies over here like this black and white stuff. Um, I think there's a place for that in movies. And I think I can understand where people can like that sort of thing and identify with it. Cause this definitely is that type of movie. It's definitely not a movie yeah. where it, where you see, uh, uh, I guess it's not a whole lot of flaws in the in the heroes, and the bad guys definitely are shown with no strain of sympathy, no no bit of humanity. Even to me, the most interesting and the most dynamic characters are Robert the Bruce, yeah, uh, played by Angus McFadden, and his father, played by Ian Bannon. Um. Because Robert the Bruce is trying to do the right thing, but he is under the influence of his father, who's a bit kind of a corrupt guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be the man that William Wallace is, but he is also trying to manage people. And so there's a flaw in him, but I don't think we're ever meant to condemn him. And the idea of a guy being so flawed that he actually causes the death of our hero. Yeah. And yet we are not meant to condemn him, mm-hmm. only his actions and the circumstances that cause that. That's the kind of subtlety that I would have liked more of. Yeah. But as it is, like, Longshanks is terrible. William Wallace is flawless. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really not room for anybody in between. Uh, yeah. And so... You know, the, the, this is just something interesting that appeal that... Uh, what's the word? Uh, occurred to me. Okay. Why can't I not think of that? Um, well, perhaps it appeals to you as well. That's why you're saying it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, it might be interesting to do a study of films where actors, especially ones who have been actors before they were directors, became directors and slash writers maybe as well, and uh, how positive they paint their own characters. Because this, this is a complaint that we had exactly with Argo, which mm-hmm. is almost the exact same situation. You take a big Hollywood actor cast him in as the lead role in a film that he's directing yeah. and turn him into kind of a flawless character. And I wonder, it's interesting because, okay, so let's, let's, let's unpack that just a little bit before we move on. Uh, I'll take dances with wolves. I'll take Argo and I'll take Braveheart. Braveheart, admittedly uh, Argo, not Ben Affleck's first film, Braveheart, not Mel Gibson's first film. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all in in all three cases, you have movie stars, not yeah. merely actors. Right. You have movie stars. Right. Uh, I'll probably throw Clint Eastwood in there as well, but I don't remember his first film. It's and as time went on, he was very interested in demolishing his yes, his image. yes, definitely. I, I 
I don't know that I've seen the first one. I feel like it's. I want to say Outlaw Josie Wales, but I don't think that's right. Yeah, yeah I'm not, later. I don't know. It's it's old though. It's like seventies. Yeah, I, I think, think so. the first one. Yeah. So um, so yeah. I, I again, I don't think I've seen it either, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if it is one where he paints himself as a hero flawless character yeah and just or at the very least the type of character he usually plays and i think maybe there's an Mm -hmm. argument for that uh not in favor of it but i i could see it coming from that these these actors perhaps one of the only ways that they're able to get their film made is if they act in it Mm -hmm. in the type of role that people are used to that people want to see yeah so it could be that um you know uh so I'll, i'll i'm i'm willing to Give the, cut them enough slack to say maybe that's the only way the film gets made. Um, and so – but there's an argument that it could also be a, an ego thing. And, and, but I, yeah, I'd rather – I'll err on the side of caution and, yeah. say that, uh, and, and say that the studio didn't trust them as well, director. Then on the far opposite side, of course, you've got Woody Allen who's, who's – uh, his uh, entire persona has been about – psychoanalyzing the the flaws in himself so that to, character doesn't exist without <laughs> all these problems yeah. to the extent that uh even when uh there are different actors in the lead he will just say just play me <laughs> that doesn't happen that much but it happened in, like celebrity and that sort of thing but yeah uh so, i think yeah i in almost all of his movies there's at least a surrogate if it's not exactly him like even yeah. in this last one magic in the moonlight colin first not playing a woody allen type whereas kenneth Branagh clearly was playing woody allen in uh in celebrity but there's another character that describes uh his his character in magic in the moonlight and it might as well be a description from of of Woody Allen from one of his seventies movies. It's like hmm. a neurotic person who doesn't who's obsessed with death or something like that. <laughs> it's a description of Woody Allen. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, it's uh, so okay. We'll talk about. There's another big thing that bothers me, not even necessarily about the film itself, but about people's reaction to it, uh, especially in the Christian world. Uh, but I will get to that a little later. Hmm. Uh, I feel like. The general tone uh, is a thing is the primary thing that bothers me about the film. But by and large, especially you know, when you look at something like The English Patient and you see how much it doesn't work. Mel Gibson, I liked Man Without a Face. I liked Braveheart. There are parts of Passion of the Christ that I liked, and I love Apocalypto. Love it. He can. He knows how to put together a movie. He knows how to make it effective. Yeah. Now, maybe sometimes through manipulation, sometimes through simplification. Yeah. But he knows how to engage an audience, and Braveheart is that. I yeah. started rewatching that, and I only got about twenty minutes in. But man, I was locked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just knows how to set a tone mm-hmm. uh, and just get you as invested as possible. Yeah, he knows how to get how to how to get you fired up and quick. Yeah. And so, uh, so the, and that's the thing is, so maybe the oversimplification of certain characters and their motivations, maybe that is a function of, we are telling a, a very simple, we want to be telling a simple tale that people can relate to, uh, and that people want to relate to, uh, good and evil, white hat, black hat, the whole deal. Um, 
And so I'm almost, I'm almost willing to not give it a pass, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of accepting of it because the film that follows is one that I think is very well conceived, uh, and well executed. Uh, the way the battles are, that's the thing that people talk about a lot is the battles. I mean, it's right in there. It doesn't pull any punches. It is gory. It's horrible. Uh, I don't think there's any, I think the film finds nobility in a person's willingness to die Mm -hmm. for a cause. Yeah. But I don't think it finds any nobility in the actual dying. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, People have talked about, because uh, Mel Gibson directs movies that there's almost a hyper-violence to them, uh, and there are people that say that he might sort of revel in it a little bit, and that might be true, but I think there's a difference between re- uh, reveling and glorifying. Yeah. I don't think he glorifies uh, no. war or violence or death. I think it is viewed as a horrible, awful thing that should be avoided if possible. Yeah. There's no cool deaths in a movie right. like Braveheart. Right. And so, um, so I really, I like that. I think the costumes are great and the makeup and just, it really feels like a, a lived in world. Yeah. You can, you can feel the time period. You can believe all of that. And it has this, uh, I feel like it has a bit of a mythic quality to it, Mm -hmm. which it's trying to do. And I think, I think it executes pretty well. And I think that works even better for something that is so black and white and that is, uh, like you said, gets you fired up early and, 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 you know, has these kind of big high stakes and things. I, I feel like that works in a myth and it's not a, a straight up myth, myth, but it, it incorporates elements of that that make it work. And, you know, there are movies like, uh, okay. Uh, Antoine Fuqua's King Arthur mm-hmm. and then Ridley Scott's, uh, Robin Hood, mm-hmm. but there are others, other examples of, okay, let's take this story that you're familiar with. Not that people are necessarily familiar with the story of William Wallace, but, you know, he's, there's a similarity to him in Robin Hood. Yeah. And it, it, there's an, it's an epic character either yeah. way. So let's, let's take this and let's try, and rather than, um, you know, create the Errol Flynn Robin Hood where everything looks maybe a little too clean from the sets to the costumes, like it seems fake. It seems like a movie. Let's have it take place in cold hard reality mm-hmm. i'm doing the same thing now with a lot of the uh superhero movies it's kind of the same thing so uh, maybe not of, so yeah. much i don't know that marvel does it so much but I, that was i think that was some of the impetus behind the the batman reboot oh no question about it um and but what one thing that happens and that i think the batman movies actually avoid um one thing that happens like with king arthur and with robin hood is in an attempt to show this as it must have been it winds up diminishing everything to the point that it seems less consequential Hmm. whereas uh mel gibson again this is a command of of a certain type of tone um he manages to get right into the dirt and the muck and the cold Mm -hmm. uh and the blood and sweat just it's all there but it takes on a mythic quality. It gets bigger as a result yeah. somehow. Um, and I think that has to do with, you know, how it is shot, how it is cut together to the extent, the, the idea of, wow, what a horror, these characters live in a horrible world, but mm-hmm. they're still able to do what they're doing. How amazing is that? Yeah. 
So I feel like some of that could be with the writing. I don't think I consider my, I'm not, I don't think I really consider myself a fan of Randall Wallace. I think he went on to write Pearl Harbor and uh, mm. we were soldiers. I think he directed that one too, actually. Hmm. Um, you know, I think he is a, a very simple writer. Um, but I think you need somebody like a Mel Gibson to elevate yeah, in the hands of somebody like a Mel Gibson, a, a simple script can really stand out. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I will say, um, so from a technical standpoint, uh, it was really, a, a an achievement and it does what I think a big epic movie is supposed to do, which is transport you completely into this world to the extent, uh, one thing that I talk about, uh, on battleship retention from time to time is you know when you're watching a movie it's all audio and visual there are there are only two senses being engaged and yet somehow there are some movies through the way it's shot through the way the actors are directed through the costuming whatever where you feel heat mm-hmm. you feel hot you could be in the, in the the coolest most air conditioned movie theater but if you watch I don't know. Sahara. (laughs) The Wild Bunch. There you go. You watch The Wild Bunch and it's like, man, I need to take a shower. Like, (laughs) I'm hot and sweaty. You're actually not, but you feel like it. And then movies like, you know, uh, A Simple Plan or Fargo. And in this case, I think Braveheart, Mm -hmm. you feel cold. It seems chilly. You wonder why... It seems like these guys would inv- would invent pants instead of kilts because <laughs> it's so cold, and so uh, so that's another thing. And I think that's probably a function of, of cinematography and lighting and color and colorization and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So uh, so yeah, it's it's a real technical achievement. I think the acting uh, across the board is pretty good. I think Mel Gibson makes a very good William Wallace and a guy who can you know, be heroic. Admittedly, he's nothing else. He's completely heroic, um, which is something I have a problem with, but I think he does a good job with that. Patrick McGowan, who I'm not really familiar with, but he was in the prisoner. Oh, yeah. yeah. He plays Edward the Longshanks and I, I love him. He it makes for a very good villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, a, I'm always a fan of Angus McFadden. I, I feel like he's not in enough. Um, but he, I feel like he's a very good, subtle character, and it's one of the only subtle characters, so I'm fine with it. Mm. Uh, I would also like to point out um, uh, Brian Cox is in the film very briefly. I forgot about that. Yeah, he plays William's uncle mm. and so, because William's father dies, and his uncle takes him in. And there's a he's a strong man. But he also is kind of sensitive and he's intelligent. And that's the thing that he really focuses on is, yes, it's important to be strong and be willing to fight, but you need to fight with your head first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we we really need to get echoes of the Brian Cox character in William Wallace. Mm-hmm. We need to see the seeds planted. So he actually, the character almost takes on a symbolic quality. Yeah. Uh, but he manages to make him into a full fledged character with limited screen time, by the way. So, you know, that's the thing is there's a lot going for the film. It won best makeup, sound effects, editing, cinematography, director, and picture. 
I think I'm fine with all those uh, technical awards. It was nominated for original screenplay, costume, sound, editing, and original dramatic score. Frankly, I feel like it could have won sound. It could have won editing. Costumes. And and costumes, and I would have been fine with that. Yeah. Uh, Now, as far as it winning Best Picture, we'll get to that in a moment. Because let's look at these other Best Picture nominees. Apollo 13, Babe, Sense and Sensibility, and Il Postino. I haven't seen Sense and Sensibility in a long time, and I've never seen Il Postino, even though I own it. Yeah. Uh, I have not seen Babe in a long time. I remember really responding to it, and critics absolutely loved it. It was it was not Gene Siskel's favorite film of that year, but of the Best Picture nominees, it's the one that he thought absolutely should win hmm. because there's so much imagination to it. For me, though, Apollo 13 is the one that really stands out as like giving Braveheart a real run for its money, especially yeah. in technical awards. Like, yeah, oh yeah, as much of an achievement as Braveheart is, at no point do the characters achieve weightlessness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you and just the sheer amount of commitment and effort that went into filming this is astounding to Mm -hmm. me. I feel like any number of people would look at that film being shot the way Ron Howard wanted to shoot it. And I can't imagine any studio saying, here's some money. (laughs) Yeah. Here's millions of dollars. Just go up and down in that plane all day long, (laughs) uh, to create that weightlessness effect. I mean, that's insane. And just, and the, the toll that that must've taken on the director, on the cameraman, on the actors, and yet everybody's on on board for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. And I feel like it's a nice, it's an inspiring film without, I don't think it's ever sentimental. Uh, I feel like it's, if we get sentimental, we might make a bad call mm-hmm. and these guys are going to die. So yeah. I, I feel like it's, I feel like the emotional core of the film is Ed Harris. Yeah. Who he's, committed to getting these guys down and he's personally invested but he cannot let that dictate his behavior he right. needs to be cold and clinical yeah and i feel like that's kind of how the film is um now here's here's something about apollo 13 that is interesting i remember at the time uh there was a youth sponsor at church a guy that i really liked and respected and he brought up something that was interesting to me at the time and i have never forgotten it You know, it's been almost 20 years at this point, and I've not forgotten it. He said, if only we, because he had just seen the movie and he and I were talking about it. And he said, if only we as a country were as interested in saving the lives of like, like poor Africans or, you know, just people in other countries or even poor, you know, homeless people in this country. Like if only we were interested in saving those people as we were in these three astronauts. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking about that and being like, that is, it is interesting. Uh, not that I condemn the film and I don't condemn people being invested in saving these guys lives, but it did strike me as interesting. It might've been the first time I really thought about like, yeah, everybody, you know, at the time they're looking, they're glued to their TVs. Like, are we going to be able to save these guys? Meanwhile, if you put together a report about the millions of, of, you know, dying people, uh, in other countries or something like that, uh, people would change the channel. Mm. And I remember finding that really fascinating, (laughs) but what I, and that actually, that idea actually kept me from, 
embracing Apollo 13 the way I do now for a long time. Hmm. But as time went on, I actually started to view it as what humanity can do in microcosm, Mm -hmm. which is when there's a thing that we believe in, there's a tremendous capacity to put things aside, put aside personal pride Mm. and, uh, and ego and just commit to this thing. And, you know, there's a, there's a part uh, at the end when the, the guys have successfully made it back to earth and, and spoilers, I know. And the voiceover comes in and I remember, uh, Jim Lovell says something like, you know, he says this was a testament to the, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, I don't remember exactly, dozens, if not hundreds of people that worked to get us home safe. And you realize that like, yeah, some of these guys are not going to get any recognition at all. Yeah. But the they guys with their a, slide rules. Yeah. But they played a key <laughs> role. One thing, there's a, an actor whose name I now forget. Shoot. John oh, that Wayne. Me. That bothers me. Um, Lauren Dean. That's it. Uh, his character, to my knowledge, is not really given a name. I think it's just John, but there's a million Johns running around in, mm-hmm. that, in that film. Um, you've seen Lauren Dean in other things. You've seen him in uh, Mumford. You've seen him in Gattaca. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a guy who pops up a lot. His character is barely identified but he's the one who says, hey, guys, we're looking at the wrong thing. We're focusing on air. We need to focus on electricity. We need to focus on power. And he's like the only one that thought of it. Hmm. And if this random guy hadn't thought of it, they wouldn't have had the power to get home. Yeah. And it's just everybody has a moment where they can shine. The shine might not be uh, – it might not be acknowledged, but everybody had a part to play mm-hmm. in doing this thing. And it, to me, like – not that I, I don't want to turn this into an actual episode of more than one lesson, but like, you know, that's something that I think we can all look at is we all have our part to play. Sometimes it's Ed Harris, the guy in charge calling the shots. And sometimes it's just the guy with his slide rule. Yeah. But if that guy's not there with his slide rule, these three guys die. Yeah. So that's a thing that I really came to appreciate about Apollo 13. Yeah. And so for me, best picture would come down to, of the nominees would come down to Braveheart or Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. An argument could be made for e- for either one. Yeah. Um, I think my preference would probably be Apollo 13. But now that I'm rewatching Braveheart, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's kind of a toss-up. It's weird that they're both kind of... They both feel like very all-American films. Boy, they sure do. Even though, obviously, there's no part of America in, in Braveheart. But it's still... It clearly has that same feel of... Yeah. Uh, it's clearly... I, I think it's meant even to invoke the uh the american ideal yeah of, don't tread on me yeah individualism and yeah freedom and all that stuff they mention freedom in the movie i feel like it gets said a couple times i don't know i i think he yells out like independence or something like that. oh that's right yes yes or usa that's what <laughs> he says that at the end um <laughs> So it's Wouldn't that be a weird, surreal, but like, that feels like that could be a David Lynch choice. Like, that could really happen in somebody else's movie, maybe. Man, that'd be amazing. If only movies did what I, what we think would be funny for them to do. <laughs> um, so, okay, uh, so those are the movies that were nominated. Now, as far as the movies that were not, some of the notable ones, and there are a bunch of them in 1995, uh, and I won't go through all of them, 
but I'll mention a few that I think that I responded to personally. I responded to more than Braveheart and Apollo 13. Oliver Stone's Nixon resonates very deeply with me. It's interesting. These are two movies that feel very all American. Nixon does not. Yeah. Uh, but in, in a way it's quintessentially American. It's a guy (laughs) who was raised on a lemon farm, Mm -hmm. uh, who becomes president, but then the idea that that's not enough for him. Mm -hmm. And what I like is that it doesn't necessarily extrapolate larger things from that. It says this was a deeply tragic man who was the, who was his own worst enemy. Like he, is responsible for his own downfall. Mm. And if, and you know, characters say like, can you imagine what this guy would have been had he been loved mm-hmm. and not even so much had he felt loved? Cause there are people that genuinely hated him. So he, he wasn't necessarily paranoid. Mm. Um, I, the more, every time I see Nixon, I love it more. I think it's, and it's a surprisingly sympathetic portrait of a man that people do not sympathize with. And Oliver Stone certainly didn't sympathize with. And so I, I actually really appreciate that. Um, I'm also a big fan of Leaving Las Vegas. Have you ever seen it? I have not seen I've seen either of those. Oh, boy. I know. Next time I go over to your house, we'll watch the three-hour Nixon, <laughs> and that won't be a problem at all. Yeah. Um, Get some pizza and Surge and watch Nixon. Nixon, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Leaving Las Vegas, it did win Best Actor for Nicolas Cage, um, and uh, rightfully so. He's wonderful in it. Elizabeth Shue is wonderful in it. And it's just – it's a much smaller film, but it's just too – very broken people uh, falling in love with each other and trying to determine what that means when they are as broken as they are mm-hmm. and what it means to like, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, how much of a responsibility do you have to them to change yourself and how much of a responsibility do you have to demand that this person change them, you know, change their themselves. Um, it's a really complex film that I really like. I'm also a big fan of the American president. I haven't seen that either. uh, Rob Reiner film written by Aaron Sorkin, Mm -hmm. and it has all the stuff that you would expect from Aaron Sorkin uh, and Rob Reiner. It's very simplified. Uh, It uh, clearly does not uh, agree with me politically, (laughs) um, but I don't care. Uh, It's dazzling and wonderful, and it's Capra-esque, and it's all American. Mm -hmm. I really like it a lot. Um, aside from that, there's really aren't, there really aren't a lot that jump out as like best picture type of movies. Um, no, not really. There's ones that are, that, you know, that are memorable or oh, like sure. seven or 12 monkeys or some of those ones that are the usual suspects, ones that are yeah. going to be in the, in the, the mind of filmmakers and film right. goers for the rest of, of time. But that's not necessarily, you know, that type of thing. And you know, last, uh, in the last, uh, best picture minisode um, I mentioned the idea of people being inspired to become filmmakers based on a certain movie and often it's never just one movie but sometimes it is and you know I think there are people that see The Usual Suspects or Seven or Heat and or Casino and they look at that and say I want to be a filmmaker and Last time I talked about it, like no one would ever say that with the English patient. And part of me, maybe that's, maybe that should be my standard. Like part of me feels like a best picture should be something that inspires people to want to make art. Something like Gigi. I never saw it. <laughs> How is it? Oh yeah. no, don't, don't, don't actually, no, never mind. We'll talk about it when we get to it. it. I'll say one thing. It won more Oscars than this movie did. Oh my gosh. What a travesty. Um, but that's, so 
based on that standard, I think Braveheart is a very, is definitely best picture worthy yeah, because I there are people material. that I think were inspired to probably become filmmakers and people that were personally inspired in their own lives, which now brings me to the last section here mm. of, of this mini-sode. Um, and we'll try to sum up in maybe like five to seven minutes. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, okay, so if you are listening to this and you are a Christian, and I would venture to say if you are also a man, uh, you will probably have heard about Braveheart and William Wallace and his big sword uh, and all that sort of thing. Uh, no, that's not a euphemism. I mean just his giant broadsword uh, that uh, people like to own. Uh, if you have read anything by John Eldridge, if you have listened to a number of sermons by Mark Driscoll uh, and any number of others who tr- who try to discover what masculinity in the modern age of the church looks like, uh, trying to not have it be too milk toast without having it be too tyrannical, uh, they often arrive at Braveheart and say that this – this is masculinity. This is what we should strive for. And while I understand the idea of a character that is heroic and selfless and all mm-hmm. that, um, I don't, f- uh, I don't relate to William Wallace. Yeah. Well, I, there, there are certainly qualities to admire in him. Sure. But I think we may be going too far when we look at him as a character to emulate. Right. Or that he is the perfect man, as it were. Yeah. I mean, you and I have said before that to me, one of the most, like, a a more, uh, maybe not more heroic, but a heroic guy that I, that resonates more with me is another historical figure in another best picture, Thomas More, in in A Man for All Seasons. Yeah. but I find myself wondering if some guys, Christian or otherwise, would look at him as opposed to William Wallace and say, yeah. what a dork, what a wuss, <laughs> what a any number of things. Um, and my hope is that – that's the thing. If you are listening to this and you see Braveheart and you feel like – and it makes you want to aspire to be a stronger man or person, whatever – and have integrity and stand up for what you believe. Great. If you are, but if if you feel like it, that you are less than because you're not like an alpha male type, who's like aggressive and can fight, literally mm-hmm. fight. Uh, and you feel like, and you feel shame as a result of that, then drop it. You don't. This is not the Bible. This is not no. uh, canon. Uh, you, you don't need this. Right. Take it for what it's worth, and then leave it. Exactly. And I think that's. Part of the thing that that uh, concerns me about it, too, is we just talked about not looking at William Wallace as the perfect man. And if we are Christians, we have a pretty easy example for the perfect man. Yeah. And there are elements of what William Wallace does that that are present in Jesus' character. Yeah. Whether it's self-sacrifice or whether it's um, – I mean, that's the, the biggest one, obviously. Yeah. But uh, – he, I, I, I've thought of this comparison before because John Eldridge, who the writer of Wild at Heart, among other books, did specifically compare Jesus to, to William Wallace. Right. And 
when you look at the two, they there are major divergences, even though they're in very similar situations. Jesus comes to this people that are under oppression uh, from a certain, you know, a, a big authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but William Wallace's reaction is to fight and kill them, whereas Jesus' reaction is to say, hey, you should pay your taxes yeah. and, and other such things. So uh, I think it's important to note that while there are a lot of honorable things in William Wallace and while there are a lot of great things in him that we can admire, we, we should not at all, we shouldn't, we as Christians should understand the major differences between him and Jesus. And I think this is where I start to get concerned with the black and white quality of it. Mm. Now you said that there are some movies where you're perfectly okay with it. I agree. For example, Dick Tracy. Yeah. It's strange that in a film so colorful, I'm so comfortable with black and white. Uh, But Braveheart is based on a true story, or maybe we could say – I don't think they had yet discovered the the concept of being inspired inspired by by a true true story. story. Um, But uh, it is based on a true story, and it is meant to be taken seriously as a film, and it is something that is meant to inspire people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if a film is – if it's aspiring to inspire, then – I think it has a certain responsibility to people, even if this is meant to be like an old time Spartacus type epic mm-hmm. uh, or Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. Um, but it's also wanting to create a real world, you know, that's dirty and it's not clean at all. But it's depiction, but it's view of morality, not even morality, but like good people and bad people. That's as, that's clean as a whistle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a little bit irresponsible because if you start to, I'll, I'll, I'll incorporate it into what we were talking about. If you look at William Wallace and you say, that is it, that's the pinnacle. That is what I want to be. Well, and you want to be him, you want to be the William Wallace of Braveheart. Well, what happens when you run across somebody that opposes you? Because Longshanks is pure evil, yeah. pure, irredeemable evil. What do you do? Well, if you're William Wallace, you stand up to him and kill him if you could. Mm-hmm. If you are, however, Jesus, then you speak truth to him, you speak truth to others, and if necessary, you die. Mm-hmm. Which, admittedly, William Wallace did as well, but it's not a thing he volunteered for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I feel like that's that's certainly the difference between Jesus and William Wallace. And I think that is the importance uh, of taking an attitude like Jesus is recognizing everybody, no matter how opposed they might be to you, and even no matter what harm they do to you, everybody is still equally loved by God and Somebody's actions might be completely deplorable, could be just the worst thing ever, but they are no less loved than you. And thus, more than anything, yes, you should start, you should do you, what you can to keep them from hurting people and maybe even keep them from hurting you. Uh, and if that means fighting, great, but you're not better than they are. I think this is a film that looks and says, William Wallace, he's better than all of us. He's the best guy in the room, no matter what room he's in. Um, and I think that's where, you know, combining these two things, the black and white quality of it with the, the desire to inspire something in people, you put those together. And I think it can be a, maybe a dangerous combination. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I, 
you know, we were in a men's group and we read through Wild at Heart, knowing full well everybody in group. Some people had read it, some people had not, but uh, those that had, some people are tremendously inspired by uh, Wild at Heart and good for them. Mm. It always bothered me because mm. it spoke to me, it always spoke in generalities. And I was like, I need something more concrete because right now you're talking about heart, you're talking about all these things, you're talking about broad concepts, you're talking, frankly, in Braveheart speak. Mm hmm. Freedom, heart. Oh, okay. <laughs> now what? You know, that's that's the thing that that gets me. Mm. Um, and so, but again, like with Braveheart, like with Wild at Heart, if it inspires you to be a genuinely better person, great. And then, if you're a Christian, it inspires you to do that. And then eventually, you got to turn to Jesus and recognize recognize like he was even better. Right. So. That's one thing that I wanted to uh, to put out there and something that I was excited to, to, to discuss as we talk about Braveheart. Because in the Christian world, it does come with this it's, – it's very strange. It comes with this uh, baggage mm-hmm. um, that I didn't think I wanted to devote an entire episode to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah but it's something, so. something to talk about. Absolutely. Okay. So here's the thing. If I, if I have this right – we might not. We probably won't be doing a, a best of pictures minisode for a while because Halloween times is coming up, and we don't do minisodes in Halloween times. We do four or maybe even five. I think four, uh, four full Halloween themed episodes. It's going to be very exciting. I'm looking forward to Halloween times. Absolutely, I know you will. I should bring a bag of those uh, those pumpkins that I love at uh, at Halloween times and just eat that during the recording. It would be. Tell you what, you can bring those to the Conjuring episode. <laughs> Granted, if it, probably if I'm not here, then I'm I am bringing them to wherever yeah, I am. Yeah, you're just you just have them constantly. You just have a pocket, two pockets full of them. Yeah. That way, anytime you put your hands in your pockets, you're like, hey, all right, mm-hmm. I forgot. How could I forget? Yeah. And um, I say la dolce vita to myself. That's the good life, right? The sweet life. The sweet life. Oh, even better. They're sweets. <laughs> um, yeah. So the next one will be uh, Robert Zemeckis's uh, Forrest Gump, which we will talk about uh, in early November. Mm-hmm. So uh, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, enjoy Halloween times. Spooky. <laughs> All right, uh, Josh. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye.